1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn
2: more at uh1.com. Absolutely, it's Joe Biden as the over 40 years near constant president as part of the national security community, and that's just his reaffirmation of his view and his commitment to how he uses intelligence. It is absolutely a message to the intelligence community that you can breathe in and out.
3: I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 2nd, 2021. The president's interactions with intelligence and public comments about intelligence are dramatically different in the first six months of the Biden administration than they were during the last presidency. To talk about those differences and why they matter for intelligence and national security, I invited onto the Lawfare podcast Sue Gordon and John McLaughlin. Sue Gordon, for two years during the Trump administration, was the principal deputy director of national intelligence after decades of service at CIA and at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA. John McLaughlin served as the acting director of central intelligence during the Bush 43 administration after a career as an analyst, manager, and executive in the CIA. We talked about the differences between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to intelligence, focused on the presidents themselves. And we talked quite a bit about President Biden's recent comments at Liberty Crossing in McLean, Virginia, the home of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the National Counterterrorism Center, what he said and what he didn't say, and what it all reveals about intelligence and policymaking in the Biden years. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 2nd, Sue Gordon and John McLaughlin on intelligence, Biden, and Trump. A lot of ink has been spilled on the, say, unique relationship. Between the president and intelligence in the last administration. John, can you give us a brief framework on understanding the evolution of that relationship during the Trump years?
1: Well, David, of course, Sue will be able to add to this because she lived part of this. I watched it from outside, and as I watched it, I could identify at least four phases in that relationship. They're not chronological, and they're not mutually exclusive, but they're present uh, as you look through the Trump administration. And the four that I identify are basically ignorance, hostility, necessity, and finally politicization, and just a sentence or two on each of those. By ignorance, I mean he came to office probably with less knowledge of the intelligence community than any previous candidate who'd reached that point. Mm -hmm. I could compare him to others, but I'll just leave it at that for now. And then hostility. It wasn't there initially. In fact, after his first meeting with briefers, he said he respected them. This was when he was a candidate. Now, he added, of course, that he'd read their body language and thought they didn't like President Obama, and so he took a, a shot at Obama. But the hostility really didn't kick in big time until the intelligence community in October of 2016 and january of 2017 issued statements that indicated the russians had interfered in the election and in the latter statement said something to the effect that they had been trying the russians to tip it toward trump right and that's the time when we heard him say this is they're treating me like like a nazi would treat me and then necessity means the third phase that every president regardless of what they think of intelligence they're driven to use it at some point so when Three months into the administration, the uh, Syrians were thought to be using chemical weapons. Trump really had to turn, I assume, to the intelligence community for some confirmation of that or not. And that happened again. And of course, when he, almost everything he did in foreign affairs from then on, including the operations against uh, the Iranian general Soleimani and the ISIS chief al-Baghdadi, they all had to depend to some degree on on intelligence data, and then politicization was there in some level all along. But I, to me, it looked like it really deepened and accelerated toward the end when he he ran through three DNI directors, DNI directors of national intelligence, who were acting in in the last year or so of the administration, and particularly the final one was. Basically, clearing information for public use that had an obvious political content, and I'd never seen that before coming out of a a DNI office. So those are the phases I see. That was the overview of it. Uh, Just one other little comment. I suspect when people who dealt with him are freer to talk, it, it won't seem as unidimensional as I've made it sound. I'm sure people will say, "Well, we were able to deal with him, you know, more productively than you're describing," but that's how I see it.
3: Thank you. That's a really useful scene setter. Sue, I will go a step farther with you because you were indeed there for much of this. Some of that spilled ink I referred to was from me and others, perhaps making things more difficult for you and others in the government at the time, but trying to enlighten folks about the historical similarities and differences in the last administration and why those differences mattered. At one point, I remember writing about this as a second time of troubles, building on the phrase used to describe the era around the Pike and Church Committee hearings in the 1970s. But then I was referring specifically to the direct relationship between the president himself and intelligence. Most of policymaker intelligence interactions, though, take place below that level with customers Briefings for customers, products for customers who are cabinet secretaries, ambassadors, military officers, assistant secretaries, even desk officers. And I'm wondering if you can characterize how those relationships worked during the time you were the principal deputy director of national intelligence and how you think the intelligence community overall performed in those roles where much of foreign policy formulation and execution actually happens.
2: David, that's a... Great question so i'll I'll use a little bit of what John said in that one of the things that was so different about this presidency with others is how former President Trump was focused almost exclusively on economics. Mm-hmm. and I think John would agree with me that our historic strength had been in political military intelligence. And so there was a bit of scrambling to catch up to where his actions were with the National Economic Council and where our strength was with the National Security Council. So I think that was an interesting thing that that challenged us throughout his tenure and at which we got better. So to get directly to your question, I think the intelligence community performed its job well for the people that use our product to help shape both their policy and their reaction to national policy. I think our relationship with the Defense Department, with the Assistant Secretaries and with military leaders was exceptionally strong. I think with State Department, it became more fraught over time It was better when Mike Pompeo was the director of the CIA. When he moved to state, it became more fraught a bit because of where he was going and what he believed he knew independent of what we produced. I think one of the most useful relationships we had at that level was with the Department of Treasury because there were so many responses to crisis, that were are going through some economic action. And that relationship, I think, strengthened over the four years and mm-hmm. was something that we can say we grew and got better at over time. So I think at that level, we were awfully good. I think where it got difficult was when policy and decisions were being made at a rate and without the normal national security process. So it was hard for the assistants and the unders to keep up with where the decisions were being made. And that kind of broke a little bit of the value of that relationship. Mm-hmm. But but in general, I think we performed well at that level And you can look at everything from China policy to, you mentioned, the actions against Iran in the summer of 19, when that was such a delicate moment in time. And even things around the negotiations with Kim Jong-un as times where intelligence at that very working level performed some really important functions.
3: Yeah. Let me follow up on something you said there, because the intelligence community prides itself on adapting to customers, not just the first customer, the president, but other customers. And historically, that has usually taken the shape of having a policymaker come into office, perhaps a cabinet secretary or a national security advisor who has views that diverge from those being presented by the intelligence community, perhaps even hostility towards some element of the IC and the briefers and the people who who serve that customer adapt and find a way to get the messages through despite those interpersonal and sometimes professional policy obstacles but it seems like you're talking about something different here sue which is that you had a whole suite of senior officials come into office meaning the the national security chiefs of secretary of state secretary of defense national security advisor very few of whom, uh, if any at the beginning, had ever served in a functioning national security process with principals' committee meetings and deputies' committee meetings. They were all people from the outside who may have had capable deputies and assistant secretaries underneath them, but when it came to the ultimate decision-making process that all of that funnels up to, the president, the vice president, the national security advisor, most if not all of the national security department and agency secretaries they had not seen how it was supposed to work. And that does make it hard to adapt and for intelligence to make itself useful for those decisions, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, a little bit. And again, I break it into halves. Actually, David, at the beginning, you had with HR as the national security advisor and Jim Mattis. Um, You had a lot of
3: very experienced people, absolutely, but but they had not been Deputy National Security Advisor before or a Cabinet Secretary before.
2: Yeah, they had, but they had an idea of how it should work. The problem was they were trying to make something work for a president who had, in John's word, just non-pejoratively ignorance of what it was supposed to look like. Right, right. And so you have novices trying to work a system for a president that didn't know either how it was supposed to work and had no preconception that the intelligence community was anything more special than the advisors he had that were on the outside. So I think the first half, you see us trying to work the system the best that set of advisors have. Then you just see the break when it becomes apparent that that isn't serving this president. And then you see experienced hands leaving the president getting more impatient and you see really kind of a breakdown of the systemic approach. It doesn't mean that intelligence wasn't present or being used. I thought John's opening soliloquy was a really good statement of there's still a lot of contribution, But there wasn't a system that anyone understood by the end of the tenure. And it kind of devolved over time.
3: John, let's move to the current president. President Biden on Wednesday went to the intelligence community facility at Liberty Crossing in McLean and spoke at some length to IC leaders and officers. On substance, it was interesting to me that he barely... Mentioned COVID. It was just an aside, even though there's a lot of attention to the intelligence community's efforts to unearth the origins of COVID, the leak at the lab theory versus a, a natural development theory. And he didn't talk at all about the so called Havana syndrome, the mysterious illnesses and other issues that are coming up now, perhaps we should call it the Vienna syndrome. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, did you find it odd that these two things that are probably near the top of the public discussion of what the intelligence community is looking at right now were not the top things on the president's agenda to speak about? And and does that reveal something about what the media focuses on versus the very wide scope of the IC?
1: I, actually, I didn't find it particularly surprising, uh, David. I, I think he had a different purpose in going there. Now, to be sure, he did mention some substantive things, such as climate change, for example. Sure. But I think his broader purpose in going there, as is often the case with presidents and intelligence, is simply to, uh, put it simply, to show up. In other words, uh, Sue may agree, the, the intelligence world relishes nothing more than a president who shows up, who gives some attention, who basically says, you're doing a good job, I need you, and I'm not going to politicize you, which is, I think, all he was really trying to to accomplish there. And he was doing it against the backdrop of a period that we just talked about, in which the intelligence community, I think, actually did a very good job, but under tremendous pressure, uh, both public and, I assume, private. So I think that was his point there. I think that's basically what he was trying to do. Now, at the same time, of course, he has placed some really tough jobs on the intelligence community, and maybe he just didn't want to, you know, give the press something to latch onto. But for example, asking the intelligence community to render a judgment on the origins of COVID 19 is about the most politically sensitive thing you could ask an intelligence community to do. Absolutely. So it's another reminder that even though this is not a president who will literally politicize the intelligence. The intelligence community can never escape political controversy. It's a non political institution, but it inevitably deals with things that are highly controversial. And this is one. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're the one writing that paper right now, you're you're probably trying to figure out, well, how do I say something meaningful? In other words, not on the one hand, on the other hand, something meaningful uh, that I can support, knowing that whatever I say is likely to be attacked by someone, and I'm likely to have to defend it, maybe in Congress or somewhere else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's normal in the intelligence community. So. I I think part of what he was saying is we're back to normal now. We're back to
3: normal. So let me ask you to pick up on that. John said that part of it is just showing up and the importance of of being seen showing up. Four years ago, the the president showed up. He did it on his very first day. He showed up at CIA and spoke in front of the memorial wall in an unusual speech that most of us will never forget. (laughs) Instead, President Biden went, to the office of the director of national intelligence, which is not a mistake. Tell me what you read into the fact that he went to the ODNI instead of going to CIA.
2: I think everything John said is true about the overarching message of I'm here. You're important. You're my team. You're, you're vital. But I think the selection of the ODNI as his first visit was purposeful, as purposeful as his first nomination was of real Haynes.
3: Right, right.
2: And and I think that, that it in part signals that there are some strategic cross-cutting issues, as John mentioned, that he is laying at the feet of the intelligence community, and he's signaling that he has an expectation of a collective answer, not just one. So I think the choice of the of the ODNI for a first visit was purposeful and significant. And I think to John's point, he has laid a lot of very tough issues on them, not just the origins of COVID, but the participation how the intelligence community should participate in dealing with domestic Mm -hmm. extremism. So I I think the speech was what you would expect. I think the reason for the visit there was saying, I do expect leadership of the community, not just agency centric, and I'm going to lean on you.
3: I appreciate that. Thanks. Let's walk through a few interesting parts of what president Biden did say as a way of getting at how he looks at intelligence overall and some of the key issues therein. John, first, I noticed that right up front in his remarks and at least twice during his speech, he didn't just talk about the service that the intelligence community provides to the United States national security and to policymakers in the United States, but he made a mention of how amazed the audience should be that how many of his foreign counterparts thank the US intelligence community when he talks with them for what they do. Later on, he said, you're the eyes and ears of the world and in the front lines of our national defense, and in many cases, for the world's national defense. Now, going back a couple of decades, it would have been hard to imagine a, a president going to the intelligence community in the United States and talking about its service to the world and its benefit to the world. And yet, Biden was putting that near the front of his remarks. And I'm wondering what you make of that and what that tells you about President Biden's mindset toward the real value of intelligence.
1: Well, first, I think, David, he he was recognizing a reality that, in fact, one that many Americans don't recognize, because I think they assume that our intelligence community does everything it needs to do on its own. In fact, you know, as Sue certainly knows, uh, and has lived, that that the intelligence community relies to a great degree on other countries for some of what it gets, particularly in areas where they are stronger or more present. You can fill in the blanks on that. So he was recognizing that reality. But the second thing I think that I read into it is it is very consistent with his whole emphasis on alliances as force multipliers. In other words, here we are facing, uh, you know, the first really serious competitor we've had in the world in decades in China and others, Russia, India, and India is a friend, of course, but still a big capable country, Iran, a big country. Facing all of that, The United States on its own would have really more to do than any country should be expected to do. So his view, I think, I read into his diplomacy that he wants to strengthen alliances as ways to multiply U.S. force and influence in the world and to be a leader. And part of what he's signaling there is the intelligence community should be a leader, too, in the world as Uh, you know all countries have an intelligence service and we have relations with nearly all of them and i that's how i read it uh very consistent with his um Mm -hmm. overall emphasis selling a little or a lot
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
3: Sue, President Biden also said, you will never see a time while I'm president of the United States when my administration in any way tries to affect or alter your judgments about what you think the situation we face is. How much of that statement do you think is just truly Joe Biden's governing philosophy and his attitude towards truth-telling from the intelligence community? And how much do you suspect it's a reaction to the tweets and the rallies full of denials of Russian operations against the United States in 2016 and beyond from the last president?
2: I think it's both of those, and I'll put a caveat on it. So absolutely, it's Joe Biden as the over 40 years near constant presence as part of the Mm -hmm. national security community. And that's just his reaffirmation of his view and his commitment to how he uses intelligence. It is absolutely a message to the intelligence community that you can breathe in and out. Right. I understand who you are we'll go back to that role of independent voice of intelligence that supports policy rather than being intertwined. But my caveat to that is this would be the very first administration of all time. If it never runs into a moment where it wishes intelligence were not so darned inconvenient. Right. 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 There will be issues where the intelligence for this administration will be as inconvenient as it has been for other administrations. And it is always difficult to decide that you're going to be able to set a policy sometimes that needs to be inconsistent with the intelligence. And so the only thing I would say is the first two are true, but there will be moments where there is that tension between intelligence and policy And I think what he's trying to signal is when those things come, I'll recognize that we will not try and use Mm -hmm. intelligence improperly Mm -hmm. to make our point, but the tension will come.
3: I found it telling in that regard that despite having lived through as vice president eight years of those tensions, it certainly wasn't every day in the PDB, but certainly there were plenty of times in the Obama administration when there was a disconnect with what the the president and vice president probably wished the intelligence was telling them and what actually came despite that that Joe Biden told the assembled group on Wednesday that the thing he misses the most uh when he is a professor for 4 years after leaving the vice presidency was in fact the PDB telling you where his his mind is on that John something else that the president did in his speech and probably spent more of his time on this in his speech than other topics, is addressing what he called new challenges and hybrid threats. He didn't just walk through like intelligence leaders used to do every year in the worldwide threat testimony, the racking and stacking of the threats to United States national security. He didn't talk about a lot of traditional threats. He ended up emphasizing things like climate change, hypersonic technology, and then of course, cyber. And one of the main takeaways from the speech, and the thing that perhaps got the most press replay, was when he said, "If we end up in a war, a real shooting war with a major power, it's going to be as a consequence of a cyber breach of great consequence. Talk through your reactions to that, if you will, both in terms of his strong emphasis on cyber, but his very blunt admission that he sees cyber as something that is likely to lead more than any other cause to great power, active conflict.
1: Uh, David, actually, that last remark that you quoted, that did surprise me. That did surprise me in Mm -hmm. the sense that it's a little hard to game that scenario out. Now, he may be seeing material that leads him to have that deep concern. But of course, when it comes to cyber, one of the things that we struggle with as a country, and certainly our policymakers, is exactly how do you counter how do you respond to cyber how does escalation work if you counterattack in cyber does the other side counterattack? we don't know that yet and so i found that a little surprising and i if had i been advised had someone given me his talking points and said what do you think i would probably have advised him not to say that but he said it so it it tells me he's thinking about that issue of escalation and is worried about it. And I've been thinking a lot about that too, the whole question of deterrence under that heading. In other words, in the Cold War, we learned how to deter the Soviet Union, but it was a kind of a unidimensional thing. We had nuclear weapons, they had nuclear weapons. We knew what we could do to each other and we developed uh, protocols for avoiding the worst. We don't have that with cyber yet. And I think he was recognizing that in that comment. And then more broadly, the fact that he focused on that kind of issue, uh, I was glad to see him do that because on the traditional issues, and you know, the laundry list would be, you know, Russia, Iran, Syria, terrorism. We know a lot and not everything you need to know, but we know a lot. On those things that he mentioned, we either don't know a lot or it's not settled. A climate change, perfect case in point. We know a lot, but it's not settled. And we, we need to have data. We need to have informed opinion and the same on the other issues he mentioned. So I, that's how I see it anyway.
3: Sure. Sue, what do you make of the president's comments on cyber and the way in which he phrased them? Yeah, I, I'm i with John.
2: I was surprised by that sentence because Right now, as John said, we aren't prepared to know how to get from this moment to physical conflict, but I do think it was not necessarily an ill-considered comment, because if you just look at the set of cyber activities going on just in 2021, we are starting to see things that have real physical effect. Yeah, colonial pipeline, yes, the JBS attack that could you could imagine affect food security, but even the economic impact that's going on with ransomware and what happened with solar winds. And you're seeing not just intelligence gathering activities, but ones that are having either economic and real cost or real threats. At some point, we are going to have to respond because Though they are going through the information space, they're starting to have physical effect. Mm -hmm. So I'm surprised he said it. It's not a terrible shot across the bow. But if I were listening to that and I were in the intelligence community, I would be thinking, Glorioski, we have so much work to do to be prepared to support any move to that kind of activity. Not in ter- only in terms of the depth of understanding we have, but the speed with which we understand that. So it was surprising. But when I look at it a day later, it's not a terrible shot across the bow.
3: Yeah. Something else he said that was a bit of a surprise, uh, at least for people in the very small circle with me that watch public commentary about the president's daily brief closely, was the president said, in today's PDB, You all prepared for me. Look what Russia is doing already about the 2022 elections and misinformation. Now, of course, the president has the right to reveal anything he pleases about what's in his president's daily brief. We do try to elect presidents with the character and good judgment not to reveal sensitive sources and methods and risk the national security of the United States in doing so. And I don't think Biden did so here. There's nothing there about sources and methods. Merely mentioning that the intelligence community is looking at what Russia is doing about the elections coming up in just a year seems natural to me. But that's the kind of thing when you were in government, Sue, and I'll ask you also, John, that generally talking about what was in the president's daily brief that day as a general rule was frowned upon. How do you react to him being so open about something that's in his daily intelligence report.
2: So I think it is reflective of a world where since the threat surface goes outside of government and the national security decision makers are not all governmental employees, it is a reality that intelligence information is going to have to increasingly... Become openly available. And we've seen this trend uh, since the 2017 intelligence community assessment on the election. And I think you're going to see more of it because the threat is being manifest outside the small confines of the people who receive classified information. Sure. So it seems like anathema to old hands. And I totally expect that there will be much that is kept. And I think you have to be a little careful when making gross statements about threats without details, because, you know, what do you expect the reaction to be? But the fact that more intelligence is going to have to be made openly available to different audiences, I think is just the truth.
3: John, your reactions. You you had a range of experiences from briefing President-elect Clinton to get him up to speed by giving him the PDB every day to being involved in the daily briefings for President George W. Bush, and they did not talk a lot about items in their PDB. Uh, what do you make of that, and what do you think it shows about President Biden's comfort with the daily intelligence?
1: It's really interesting, David. I'm so glad you raised that topic and the one before. I'm actually thinking about it as we're doing this and coming to the conclusion that if this was not extemporaneous and, you know, with this president, he's a confident, experienced person who is known to pop out with some Mm -hmm. extemporaneous comments now and then. But if it wasn't extemporaneous, I think the construct I would put on it would be he's actually engaging in something I mentioned a little earlier, which is a, a kind of subtle deterrence. In other words, remember, he we now know, spoke very clearly to Putin about not interfering with us on the cyber front. He gave him 16 different areas of infrastructure that he said, stay away from this. And we don't know yet how Putin's reacting. There have been some breaches, but we don't know yet. I think his comments on that cyber front might have been a way of saying, no, I'm really serious about this with Putin among them, the Chinese perhaps being the target audience. And and the same could be true of uh, mentioning uh, what he did from the PDB. And you're right. It's unusual for a president to do that. But I've seen, actually, I've seen presidents do some unusual things with the PDB, of course. One of the most unusual was, uh, I think it's publicly known, that at one point George W. Bush actually asked this was a, in a period of time well before Putin started being mm-hmm. the Putin we know but he actually asked Putin to sit in on a, mm-hmm. a PDB briefing now we sanitized that briefing a good deal in other words it wasn't the exact thing the president was seeing but it you know he he, he allowed Putin to see the subjects that we were talking about so i i i didn't find i found it unusual but i did i wouldn't object to it at all. It's, as you say, it's the president's right mm-hmm. to do that. And he didn't give away anything really.
3: No. And I do remember the folks involved in preparing that PDB that uh, Vladimir Putin would see in Crawford, Texas, describing it as a very special book that day. And one, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one referred to it as a work of art because of the way it had to be managed with obviously sensitive information, but still... In a way, impressing the Russian president into what it is the United States president gets every day on a range of topics.
1: Well, and related to that, you know, if you read what Putin had to say about Biden when Putin got back to Russia after their meeting, it it was nothing short of, I would use the word giddy.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He
1: was so complimentary of Biden. And I don't think it was, you know, eyewash. I think he was actually kind of impressed that Biden was energetic, knowledgeable, on target, didn't have to rely on notes. And also that Biden treated him as a serious person without necessarily, you know, embracing him or anything. But so all of that is interesting in the Biden presidency.
3: I'd like to get both of your takes on the very fact that. Joe Biden gave a relatively lengthy speech about intelligence, that Bill Burns had a relatively lengthy interview with Mary Louise Kelly at NPR talking about intelligence, that again, you have people talking about intelligence or senior intelligence officials speaking to the media when during the last administration, many reporters noted that the background briefings, the regular, either on the record or off the record discussions with intelligence leadership largely dried up. And from your different perspectives, Sue, as a former principal deputy director of national intelligence, John, as a former acting director of central intelligence, I'm wondering if you can offer some perspective on this. How important is it for the leadership of the intelligence community to at least engage with some Reasonable media questions and try to educate the public about what the intelligence picture is and what value there is, both to policymakers in that administration and to the national security of the United States by such engagement. Sue, why don't you start us?
2: So, a little bit what I said before I think the American people, when they're exposed to IC leadership, Who speak about what the role of intelligence is and how they see the world in general come away believing that the IC and by extension the nation have their interests and they see it as almost a calming, even when they're talking about threats, you're doing it in the way that intelligence professionals talk about. So I think it's especially now. You can't pretend that it's not going on. So you need your leaders out there. But if I go all the way back to almost your first question to me, I think what also is really important is the continuance of the practice of background briefings for reporters who are hearing so much about what's going on on the exact same national security issues about which we have intelligence to have the opportunity to talk to intelligence professionals to give them a little more perspective on the things that they are getting right i think is as important as having really strong relationships worldwide with our other intelligence partners so right. i think it's vital and that it resumes and continues is really important
3: john your thoughts on uh, the same question how important is it for the Leaders of the intelligence community to engage the media and speak publicly about these intelligence issues?
1: I think it's a good thing, David, and I think it's important right now. Now, you know, I served under seven presidents and many CIA directors, and I think back to my first CIA director. Uh, Richard Helms, who would have never done that. He would have never given an interview because that was an era when intelligence was just this arcane and mysterious thing. It was before we had congressional oversight, which is important. And so things have changed. Times have changed. And there's a couple reasons why it's important they do this. First, particularly when they are as good and as articulate as Bill Burns is, and Avril Haines, and for that matter, the president, who's a pretty experienced guy, it's important that the American public have some idea of what's happening with this, you know, the the budget is now roughly public, say, 50 billion or more money that uh, the American taxpayer provides, some idea of what's going on there without revealing inner secrets and so forth. But at the same time, and I'm thinking here of a reaction that many people gave me as someone who doesn't work there now, but when they heard Mm -hmm. normal people, I mean, you know, just normal people in my neighborhood or in Washington that I would meet, unconnected to the government, when they would hear someone like Sue testify or Dan Coats or uh, Gina Haspel hearing it in, in congressional testimony, they would say to me, my goodness, these people seem so competent. I think that's important particularly because, you know, otherwise people will have a kind of cartoon image of the intelligence world. And intelligence has made some mistakes and the mistakes that we make live on and stand out and are repeated over and over again. So it's important that people see, no, these are competent people, serious people doing serious things that affect our security and that they are engaging with a free media in in an open, free democracy.
3: Let me close out Sue, I'll come to you on this by talking about one of those competent people. And I won't ask you to comment on her directly, but to talk about the relationship between the senior most leaders of the intelligence community. Traditionally, we've had a DNI and a principal deputy, and before that, a DCI and a principal deputy, whereby if one of those people had relatively little intelligence experience, that is, they didn't come from within the intelligence community or have a deep and substantive background in intelligence, the deputy always did. Now, we didn't always have that in the last administration, but you certainly played that role in supporting someone who did not have super deep and extensive intelligence experience. Um, We have a slightly similar case now with the DNI, Avril Haynes. obviously from her experience helping to run CIA, having some intelligence background, but certainly didn't come up through the intelligence community but the nominee for her deputy is Dr. Stacy Dixon, who most of the American public have not heard of, but we certainly have. She's serving as deputy director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and has spent time at the National Reconnaissance Office and CIA and running IARPA. And I'm wondering if you can use that to talk about the importance of having a partnership leading the intelligence community now at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and how important it is to have somebody who knows the inner workings and a lot of the personnel of the community to partner with somebody who knows either the inner workings of the White House or the inner workings of Congress just as well as that?
2: That's a great question. I think one of the things that people would unequivocally say is one of the good things about ERPTA that formed the DNI is this construct of the qualifications of the director and the principal deputy mm-hmm. exactly as you articulated one with a little bit better tethering to the policy community and the other with deep knowledge of the intelligence community the latter the role i played the one if confirmed stacy will play is really necessary in part. To be the keeper of the craft of intelligence to make sure that the DNI is always well grounded in terms of what this unusual discipline is about and its limits on what it can say and what it can't say. So I think that's really important to during times of change, especially now where you need the community to not just fracture into 18 independent entities, but actually to be able to pull as one to affect what I think is the third big change in its focus over history. That is not a job for someone who just speaks about intention, but actually has the wherewithal and the understanding of the community players and the respect of the leadership to get them to come together. The other thing I'll say about Stacy, it's something that my predecessor had and Stephanie and that I had is this is a technical world. And so to have someone who, in addition to knowing the community, knows the technical aspects, I think is really important in 2021. And I will offer one of the really interesting things about Stacey Dixon is she is the first that is not disproportionately CIA in her background. right? right. And that's a really, I think that's a good thing for right now. And I think it's a particular message. So that partnership and continuing that yin and yang, I think, is one of the great strengths of the community.
3: We will end it there for today, but I look forward to speaking with both of you in the future on related topics as they come up. John McLaughlin, Sue Gordon, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, David. Thanks, David.
3: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please rate the podcast, tweet about the podcast, put out a Facebook post on the podcast, share the podcast, and of course, visit the Lawfare Store for merchandise. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Howell. Hamza Satou was our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.